0: The medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. East Asian medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Geological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of East Asian medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese and other East Asian medicines. Listen into to these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. Hey friends, before we get into today's conversation, I want to remind you that Geological is coming up to its first anniversary. And for that anniversary show, I'd like to have one of you join me. So if you've been listening to the show and you've been thinking, hey, I'd like to be on Geological or I've got something that I'd like to discuss or I've got something that I'd like to share, send me an email or better yet, record your voice. Send me the idea that you'd like to talk about And I'm going to put all of the good ideas into a hat. I'm going to pull one out and have one of you on the show. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from you and having one of you join me here on the show. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how.
1: Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Maywee Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Meiwei.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and proper herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face, so subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
0: And be sure to mention the code Cheological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to GEOLOGICAL. You probably already know my guest today, and if you haven't met him in person, you've certainly been touched by the books that he's helped to publish and bring to us, or some of the many lectures that he's given on tape over the years or in person, Dan Bensky has been around teaching us, helping us with our Chinese medicine since there were Westerners doing Chinese medicine here in the United States. So I don't really need to give him much of an introduction. You probably already know this cat. But I want to say this. Dan, as long as he's been doing Chinese medicine, and it's been a long time, one of the things I found interesting about this guy is that he is a perpetual student. I was fortunate recently to be in Nanjing, China, where I got to spend a little time with Dr. Huang Huang, who is the author of Shi uh, Da Fang" the 10 key formula families. And Dan also happened to be nearby at that point. So I suggested, hey, why don't we get together, let's have dinner, we'll go hang in Dr. Huang's clinic for a day. You know, it's wonderful to be able to walk into a clinic with someone as seasoned as Dan is and be the student. You know, it's so easy for us, the more that we get to know what we do and feel confident with it and get some experience under our belt to think we know a thing or two, but there's always room to learn something. And so I'm really happy to have Dan Bensky here with me today to talk about Chinese medicine, learning, and the long arc of practice. I mean, it's one thing to get a practice up and going. It's another thing to keep yourself interested and motivated for 40-plus years. Dan, welcome to Geological.
2: It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Michael.
0: Yeah, so you were here a few months ago with John O'Connor. We were uh, talking about the early days of Eastland Press.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that was a bunch of old guys shooting the breeze. (laughs)
0: <laughs> old guy shooting the breeze. I'm not quite as old as you, but I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm working on it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to get into with this conversation actually has something to do with being an old guy or an old person, in a sense. You've been at this a long time. And I wouldn't say I've been at it a long time, but you know, after 20 years, it's not a short time. And there's so many conversations that I hear these days about people starting off in practice and how you start and how you get your business going and, you know, just getting your feet under you. Those are really important questions. Those are important issues to resolve, you know, and you got to resolve them if you're going to have a practice, but it occurs to me that the stuff that gets us started is often not the stuff that keeps us going. And the stuff that might keep us going at one point isn't the stuff that keeps us going at another point. So you've been at this, I don't even know how many years you've been at this. Uh, About
2: 45.
0: About 45. That's probably significantly older than many of our listeners here, I suspect. (laughs) I'm
2: sure that's true.
0: I'm a little curious to know, to start with, How did you get started with this Chinese medicine stuff? I mean, a lot of folks, you know, it's like, oh, I always wanted to be a doctor or something like that. Was there, what got you going? What what sort of opened your eyes to this? I mean, I, I don't suspect you learned about it in high school. No,
2: no. I'm the opposite, actually. I got interested in East Asian culture as a young boy by accident. And that's another story, but just by accident. And so I went to college at the University of Michigan, primarily in my own mind, to learn Chinese. And after a couple of years, it was pretty obvious that uh, if I was going to learn Chinese, I had to go to some place where people spoke Chinese. So this is 1972, and that meant Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And uh, after I'd been there a couple months, I got super ill. I had very, very high fever, 103, 104. Uh, I was uh, coughing up stuff that, like from a bad science fiction movie. I was delirious. Uh, I was very, very thin. I lost a tremendous amount of weight. I had gone to see a local physician of Western medicine And then I'd even gone to see a kind of Canadian missionary MD who had given me a whole slew of antibiotics and stuff like that and uh, didn't work. And so I'm just kind of hanging out there and um, I believe it was my landlady, though I'm not sure, said I should go see like a Chinese doctor. And I was like, you mean like that folk medicines? they like still do that? Right? <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. So, but I didn't have any other choices. And anyway, the story I, went, I just went to a guy down the street and it was uh, unimpressive to me in many, many ways. He's dirty. You know, the shop was dirty and had like walrus penises and stuff like that laid out. And I didn't know what they were, but I knew that. And, you know, and, uh, you know uh, he's disheveled. Uh, he goes into the back room with me, which is even dirtier and, uh, takes my pulse for a long time. So at that point I thought, you know, maybe I should just lend him my watch. I don't know what he was doing. And he gave me what I thought looked like yard waste It had, I, only things I know it had in it, it had Pang Dahai Mm. and it had Chantui. So it had like this big, you know, a bunch of yard waste and, uh insect molting. <laughs> so I I took it back and uh my I went back to sleep. I was so tired from the expedition and my I think my landlady again brewed it up for me and I remember <laughs> looking at it like this, this looks and smells like the river sticks, right? You know, like you have to be one desperate son of a bitch to drink this stuff. <laughs> and you were. And I was, and I drank it. And uh, the, when I woke up, I felt a little better. And within, uh, I guess, I think gave me three packets. I felt completely fine except for being tired. Hmm. And so I thought, oh, this, this is something I should look into. And so I uh, spent, uh, about whew, seven, eight months, uh, banging on people's doors. I met Ted Kapchuk around that time and we ended up going to Macau, uh, after I think maybe, maybe talking to around a hundred people in Taiwan, mm. uh, with unsuccessfully for lots of reasons. Uh, and so that's how I got interested. So my interest is very um personal on a certain level. But I'm very, very sure at the beginning I thought, you know, all this all this diagnosis and philosophy, well, that's all fun, but that must be nonsense. And uh mm-hmm. you know, once I figure out what the real active ingredients are, then we can like do something real with this stuff. So I think that's uh you know completely my <laughs> turn around. 180 degrees but that's how i got interested and you know i mean this is just a one last old guy tidbit you know when we were in macau this cultural revolution still going on in china and i would say the vast majority of people who knew us uh were quite convinced that the reason that we were cia agents and that this was a very very bad cover you know so And I I know (laughs) that some people thought that because they they would tell me, like, you CIA people are stupid. Who would ever believe you'd be here studying Chinese medicine? That's like like stupid. You should come up with a better
0: cover than that. (laughs)
2: So, um, yeah, that's how I got interested.
0: That's pretty funny. Yeah. I am often surprised at, at least for me, how often I'm wrong about something, you know, my first impressions about something, I wasn't quite in the dire straits that you were, but I I had some issues that eventually took me to Chinese medicine. And it took a friend of mine badgering me to like go try acupuncture, because, you know, I mean, I lived in Seattle, I I, I thought I was an open minded kind of guy. But it just didn't make any sense. It was too far fetched. I had nothing to hang any sort of conceptual concept on as to how it might be helpful.
2: That was one of our problems was, you know, in the 70s, someone like would tell us something, we had no way to evaluate it. It was almost to the point, Michael, you think, oh, this person's what this person says makes sense. That must be wrong, right? You know, studying Chinese medicine shouldn't make sense because we don't know anything about it. Uh, so that was uh, a tussle that went on. Was a, anyway, that's a... Um, so it did take a while to
0: well, that that might explain why, especially in the beginning of studying Chinese medicine, it's really confusing. It is. yeah, right? I mean, it really it it really doesn't make sense. And it's a complex subject. I mean, Chinese medicine, it's not you know it's not like one integrated thing. it's it's like all these different aspects, right? All these different traditions, all these different pieces, you know, it could be anything from a a scholarly tradition, you know, to some guy who's learned how to use external herbs really well. He can treat, you know, people that fall down and break bones and stuff like that. Right. I mean, it's all over the place, not particularly integrated, like our Western mind would like to put it. Right. I think
2: that's, it's one of its strongest points. It's got incredible amount of flexibility because you can uh, use all sorts of different approaches and viewpoints and to, kind of uh, figure out what you can do that will
0: help this particular person the best. I would agree that it's one of the strengths. I think it also makes it really hard to learn. And and especially, at least I've found, you know, it's almost like in the beginning you need a, a scaffolding, like when you're building a building, right? You need some kind of framework so you can get the job done. At a certain point when the building is built, the scaffolding comes down, you got a building. And it seems that there's a lot of scaffolding type theories and ideas, you know, ways of approaching Chinese medicine that get us started. But I'm not sure that's what takes us the long way down the road. I mean, it's like sometimes you come up to something and you go, yeah, maybe it's a little different than I thought or how I was trained or what the book said.
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple maybe even one level deeper issues, Michael, one of them, which is, I think, really uh, important and took me a long time to hopefully learn, is that certainly our medicine has nothing to do with being right. It only has to do with being helpful. And that if you want to be right all the time, then you're going to force your patients into some kind of, you know, procrastinating bed. They're going to try and force them into some one set of theories so that you can be right and you won't help them. So I think that's a real hard thing. Most people who want to study something want to be right at it. And Chinese medicine is really not about being right. You know, you can spin all these theories that show how right you are, but, but if the person doesn't get better, in effect, you're wrong. So I think that's one thing that was it's hard, and another thing I think that's hard is that we in the we're trained, I believe, to think that precision and accuracy are the same, but lots of times in uh, East Asian medicine they're completely different. That the, the accurate ideas are kind of murky; they're not really set in stone; they're not so clearly delineated. And uh, so if you make something very, very precise, you do from kind of violence to when they don't actually understand it. And this was, I mean, brought home to me when we were in Macau, this happened to me all the time. You know, We would talk about, because most of our classmates in Macau were the daughters and sons of people who did Chinese medicine. So, you know, they would be talking about. <laughs> they
0: weren't spies like you. Well, they, yeah, they were
2: spies. So they weren't. So we talk about like dampness. They all understood they all knew what dampness was, but we would try to get some kind of very precise definition of dampness. It was always, well, kind of like that. <laughs> and so I think that's something that's, uh, I don't know, expand your mind or make your mind more flexible, but to get to the point, And this is something that, you know, this struggle and this uh, appreciation of these issues, they, they don't go away. They're still, stuff that you have to work with. No, I have to work with every day. Like what's going on with this patient? You know, how precise do I want to be? How okay am I with like, oh, my initial hit on them is wrong. You know, it's very common. I know in in acupuncture in the moment and in herbal medicine over time, where you have to work by just doing a test. Like, I don't know what's, it's one of these two or three things. So I'll try one of them and we'll see what happens. I mean, I think one of the, problems that uh younger practitioners not only but get into is oh it's one of these three things i'll do some treatment that's all of them
0: right yeah that's not going to help
2: that's not going to help and then you don't not at all and so you just pick one and you know you have a, a reason maybe not a strong one to pick one or the other but you have to be oh that one was wrong okay that person made them worse good now i know it's not that one let's try the next one and I think as long as you're open with your patients, it's fine. I mean, and and I, I'm certainly you know uh, know lots of uh, practitioners who have l- more experience than me and, and for longer periods of time, and they still work that way sometimes. So if your goal is to be right, you don't want to do that because it you know sometimes you're going to be wrong. But if your goal is in the end to help the patient, you know that's
0: just one way to do things. Yeah. The point that you make about the talking to your patient about this, I have found that this is, is really helpful. If I am really clear, that I'm not clear. But I'm also clear that it could be this, it could be that. And I let them know the situation. It's not like I'm the guy who got all the answers. Of course, people are looking for doctors that have the answers, right? I mean, we're under a lot of pressure because people want answers. We'd like to have them if we can, but there's, you know, when people come into our office, they're probably used to not having answers or they wouldn't be in our office, right? Exactly. Exactly. They've already looked for help, hasn't helped. So I find if I can get a little bit out of my Mr. Smart Guy mode and be straight with the patient, I'm not sure what this is, but I've got a few ideas. It could be this, it could be that. I'm going to choose one. We're going to go in this direction. And if I'm wrong, here's what you can expect to happen. Right? And if, we're, and if I'm right, you're going to get better in these other ways. Often people will get on board with that. But I have found that it's taken years of, God, I don't know what it is, maybe just sitting with people to be able to sit in front of a patient and go, I don't know not take that as a place of stopping, but actually as a place of starting.
2: yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, that's I mean part of my sojourn in mainstream medicine that uh, push me in the opposite direction, you know, and they always talk about patient compliance. Hmm. I hate that word. Uh, <laughs> why were they why would they comply with us? Who are we to make them comply? So I always talk about patient cooperation hmm. because they're the people with the problem. Right. And if you I think any socioeconomic background, you bring them in like, here's what's going on. Here's how I understand stuff. Uh, here's what's going on. Uh, here's let's try this. How does that sound? And uh, I don't give them too many details about how they'll feel bad if it's wrong, because that primes the pump for them to feel. that. Mm. But I just tell them it's an experiment you know, well, we'll do this for three days, five days, whatever, if it's herbs. No, if it's acupuncture, the palpation helps us know right away. But for herbs, it doesn't work that way. So it's, uh, I don't remember any, I mean, people are excited. They're, they like to be, as they should, they like to be part of the process. They're not just some, uh, beidongda, what's the word? They're not some passive recipient of my, munificence they're like uh, they're the people with the problem they have and again one thing we know from our medicines very s- clearly is that it's the patient's response to what we do that's the treatment it's not what we do so if we can bring them in it's, it helps them and it also makes it easier for us so that's a it's a good situation
3: It's at com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you.
0: I want to come back to this, this thing about being wrong for a moment. Because for me, this has been a key element in my learning over the years. I remember the first week in acupuncture school, we had Dr. Ma going over a case with us. And actually, I think most of our teachers went over some cases and, and they went over cases about how they got it really wrong. Yeah, that's right. I remember. Yeah. Right. Dr. Ma. And, and, and I suspect that a lot of us, regardless of where we go to school, we hear we hear these stories, right? And we really appreciate these practitioners that that can give us, you know, that view. Oh, here, here's what I thought. Here's how I was wrong. Here's how I turned it around. They're great stories. We love to hear them. But in that moment of being wrong, in that moment when the wheels have just come off the bus of the treatment, you know, we thought we knew what was going on, and now we're face to face with someone, and like bang. I don't know. That's being in that as opposed to hearing a lovely story about it are two really, really different things. Yeah? Yeah, no. Have you got any, what are your thoughts about when you're in those moments of, yep, this is not working and I don't know what to do? So um, I think I have a few thoughts.
2: I have quite a bit of experience with this. So, (laughs) Uh, because I think if you put yourself out for people who are in deep trouble, it's not going to work certainly right away all the time. If you, if you expect otherwise, you're uh, it's silly. So one thing I think is really important to remember, and it's very hard for us, is that it's not really about us. Yeah. Uh, so we're just conduits for whatever kinds of treatment or ideas we come up with. So it's just the same way when you treat someone and you get fabulous results. It's also like not about you. It's just one of those things that happen. So that's, you want the, you want more of the former than the latter. But so that, that's one thing. And then I think for me, my first thought is, this is a, maybe a personality a quirk is okay. Can I think quickly what I did wrong? Mm. What I, what I either did wrong by I did something wrong or I missed something. And then the next thing is, okay, well, what's, what can I do now that will help the person? And usually it's going to be something really simple, right? You know, are they really depleted? Are they really stuck? Uh, do they need someone just to hold their hand for a bit? Or do I need to let them just do their thing? So I think, uh, and then if I figured out, oh, what I did that didn't work, I can go back and Restart at that point after things have settled down. Does that make sense? But I think the first thing is like, okay, what's what's wrong, and then yeah, what is the simplest thing I can do to like stabilize the situation? Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the realization that it's not about you, not about not about me, is a very thing that's very calming, both for me and the patient. I'm not in a tizzy. Uh, I'm just very. Re- I'm not. I wouldn't say relaxed, but I'm quite calm, because it's just this is something that happens sometimes. Let's just relax and figure out where to go from there. Where if it for me, I think, oh my God, I'm like an idiot. Then I don't know. I wouldn't know what to do, and that I would communicate that sense of uh, disease to the patient who's <laughs> already has enough problems. Without that, so that's I think that's what I I I you know sometimes particularly when you push things and you say, I'm just going to do this it's like oh that is completely wrong, and you have to like stabilize things and start over again.
0: You know your your point too about when it goes really well, right? Yeah, yeah of course. Not to own that too much as well. I mean, it's really easy to, it's really, it's easy to go, oh yeah, I kind of got this dialed in and now I know what I'm doing and I'm competent and I'm worth the money and you know, blah, blah. I mean, all the noise in our head, right? It's all the same. But I find when I, when I start thinking, I really know something and I got it down. (laughs) I am asking for trouble. Indeed. And it does, if I cannot take in the, oh, Michael Max, you're so great. You fixed my back not let it puff me up. I think it does help to be a little calmer when it's like, Oh my God, now what? Yeah. I mean, and also it's, yeah. I mean, it's almost like a meditative practice that way.
2: Correct. I mean, it's, it's real. It's you do, you do what you do. Sometimes if the things junctures just right. You have, you know, fabulous results and sometimes not. And, uh, neither. I mean, if you never, if everything goes haywire all the time, You probably are incompetent, but if it never goes haywire, then you're not trying, you're not really uh, helping, you're missing, you're not helping some other people that you should be helping.
0: Yeah. As I was saying earlier, there's stuff that gets us started in our practice. You know, I mean, we have to learn how to be business people. I've been doing this about 20 years. When I graduated, actually, when I went to acupuncture school, I knew that when I got out, there were not any jobs for this. I mean, these days it's different. There are some jobs. But when I got out, I knew I was going to have to make my own business. And, you know, to be a practitioner, you got to figure out business, you got to figure out how you are with patients, you got to, got to figure out a lot of stuff. All those are essential. And they're like the, it's like learning differential diagnosis in a way. It's basic tools you need so that you can become a practitioner. But after 10 or 15 years, there's other stuff that, that becomes motivating and I suspect after 20 or 30 there's other things that become motivating in your practice as, as you look back on 45 years is there kind of tra- any sort of trajectory or sort of way stations or points where you notice oh my practice was like this but now it's turning into something else um kind of Does that question makes sense
2: I don't know if my practice has changed all that much. I mean, I I think the thing that I think is crucial in order to maintain a practice is continuing interest in your patients and in the work that you do. So a couple times in the last five or six years, I've met people who do acupuncture who have you know, whatever counts as successful practices who tell me that their practice is boring. And, uh, you know, you know me pretty well, Michael. So I just tell them, oh, well, then you should, you should get another job. So uh, (laughs) if you find this kind of work boring, (laughs) uh, you shouldn't be doing it because it's not, there's nothing boring about it. You know, so I guess what they were telling me is they had these protocols and, they have all these people with low back pain and they do basically the same thing on, on low back pain. And, um, you know, that's just like, that's like something that's just, that's, uh, maybe it works for making a living, but it doesn't work for the patients and doesn't work for you. So I think, um, that's one thing. The other thing I think that's, I find, uh, because I, know, I, I did go to osteopathic school, which in the United States is like a Western medical school and i kept up with some of my classmates, and I think over time, they have become more judgmental uh, in their work, and, and as people, and I think one of the huge things that uh, practicing this medicine has done for me is it's made me uh, less judgmental, and still, I'm still a very judgmental person, but much less judgmental. And also, I think they, as a rule, like people less than they used to like people. And I like people a lot more than I used to like them. So I think as you kind of just interact with people at this level, it does lots of beneficial things for you. And that's I think, a, a, a big, big mm. deal for me. I mean, I don't know if you, you know, when we were first started, maybe when you went to Sion we used to, we had this really small place. And the first time we did interviews for prospective students, uh, they wanted to use my room as the, my treatment room. And it just didn't work because in the treatment room, I don't judge people at all. I just try to figure out what I could do to help them. So these, we had these people come in and we're doing the interview. And I say, can you just lie down on the table here for a second? I need to check your pulse. Like, so no, I said we have to do we have to do the interview someplace else because I've been trained. You know, like in this room, I don't judge people. You know, there, there. Uh, one of my osteopathic teachers told me, like you know, in the treatment room, there are no bad patients. There's only bad doctors. And in the class, inside the classroom, there are no bad students. There are only bad teachers. When you go outside the room, it's all. You know, it's a different scene, but in the room, you have to have this kind of mentality to do the work. Something that took a lot of repetition for me to get, but I, I did get that. I'm in my private life, I'm as judgmental as anybody else, but in my clinic life, I'm not. It's a, quite astounding to me, and I think that lack of judgment kind of helps you get better results. Because again, it gets back to trying to figure out how to help the person versus trying to show the person that you're right. <laughs> I mean, right? You know, I never argue with patients about, oh, I want them to do this; they don't want to do it. I will, like, well, here's the reasons I think you should do it. So I don't want to do that. Okay, you know, I mean, uh, the the taken to extremes. I don't know if you get this in your practice, but I often give people with with back pain some kind of exercises and sometimes they'll come back and they'll go oh I'm sorry Daniel, I didn't do the exercises and I'll like you know move my back around and go oh I don't think you should be sorry to me my my back is fine (laughs) (laughs) because it's like it's not about my back it's not about me it's like you know it's your back you don't want to do it okay so I think that uh, that kind of interest in people and uh, that keeps you going. And, you know, you, they, they teach you so many interesting things. And you hear all of this stuff that you never heard about, mm-hmm. or they tell you things that are exactly what you heard about that you thought were BS. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite. One example is I had a patient. This is maybe 20 years ago, he was late 60s, retired insurance salesman, or insurance, a uh, mid-level insurance executive. And we, we had these different problems. And I often, when I do a intake for the first time, the last thing is to say to the person, well, is there anything you think might be interesting that you've never talked to any other health care practitioner about? And he said, Oh, well, you know, I have this, he looked really sheepish, but he looked like, well, okay, you know, like I have this sense that like in my abdomen, it feels like there's like I have a tree that's trying to grow there, but it can't because it's like inside a box. I said, Oh, we have a word for that in Chinese mess. It's called quen, right? <laughs> and here's the character, it's a tree. Inside a box, right? Right. I mean, this guy, you know, I think his only interaction with Chinese culture was he had chop suey once or twice. So like, he was like not like right, but he had this exact same feeling. So like, sometimes when you just let people talk, they will tell you things that you're like, really? That's real. <laughs> that's real. So uh, <laughs> I think that's something. The other thing I think for me that is a big change in my practice which is, this is embarrassing to talk about, what talk about how you were wrong before is when I first came back to the States, so I came back to the States in 76, you know, people would say to me, well, when you see your patients, then you, you don't talk to your patients. I go, I don't need to talk to my patients. Like I can feel their pulse. I don't like talk to them. Why would I, like, Why would I do that? Right? So that's like, no, that's not, that's not the way it works here. So I had to change that. And then when people would ask me to describe what I found, I would say something like, this is incredibly embarrassing, but I'd say, well, we have like a half an hour, so I can either give you a treatment in a half an hour, or I can explain the diagnosis in a half an hour. It's up to you. And every so often, I'd have a person say, well, I'll pay for half an hour of explanation, and a half an hour of treatment. So that is incredibly arrogant and stupid idea that I had. And so I've come now, I believe very, very strongly that if I cannot describe what I think is wrong with the person in a way that anyone can understand in a in two minutes or less, it just means that I don't understand it either. So if I can't get past the jargon and everything, to have a you know average person understand what I think the Chinese diagnosis means, it means that I don't understand it. So now you know I explain, I whether they want to know or not. Almost every patient, I'll spend a couple minutes. Like okay, in from our perspective, this is what's going on with you, because I think that's very important. Again, it's part of that you know cooperation, bringing them on board. Uh, we're not doing this exotic wacky stuff. We're doing stuff that you everyone can understand. So that's an example in, in my practice where I've changed about as much as one can change in one little thing. it's, it's a big deal, I think, to actually uh, have people understand that this you know, East Asian medicine isn't some whatever, esoteric, deep wisdom. It's really about people interacting with their bodies and the environment, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. And we should be able to explain it in those terms. We should be able to explain it, explain it in those terms. And it's, you know, I have to say, every so often, I'll tell the patient what I just said, and then it's like, oh, I can't do it. <laughs> I, I cannot explain to you in two minutes. Oh, I guess I really don't understand this as well as I as I should. So that that happens. Back every, to the drawing board. Back to the drawing board. That happens every so often.
0: We're going to take a short break here. Toby Daly's got some helpful information about treating wind cold with food.
4: Hi, Toby here again. I hope you're enjoying the conversation in the show. And speaking of conversations, you can have a conversation with your patients around how they can use food as medicine with the Chinese Nutritional Strategies app. I use the app to answer the question, what foods can I recommend for my patients with a wind cold pattern? The answer drawn from the Chinese medical classic texts are alcohol, black pepper, chives, cinnamon, garlic, fresh ginger, leeks, licorice root, mustard greens, onion, rosemary, and scallions. The Chinese Nutritional Strategies app has diagnosis patterns like wind-cold in its database of more than 300 common foods, along with their temperature, flavor, actions, indications, notes, and seasonal recommendations. The database is searchable by any of these criteria, and sorting through it allows the practitioner to compile a list of recommended foods and then share those recommendations via email or as a hard copy with the patient. More information is available at ChineseNutritionApp.com. Now,
0: let's listen to the next half of the show. So one of the things that I found helpful about doing that myself is often patients will have really disparate things going on with them, things that seem really like they don't hang together and it's confusing to other doctors, and it's confusing to themselves. And sometimes our Chinese medicine way of looking at it and our way of thinking and working will bring these pieces together. So they might actually see that a fall they took when they were 18 that did something to their hip might have something to do with a menstrual period that changed around that time. Exactly. you know, And that might have something to do with headaches that showed up three years later and because we can see, at least Chinese medicine offers us the possibility of seeing how some of these things might be interrelated with each other. And sometimes people are quite astonished to hear, wow, how did you think about that? And I'm thinking, well, it's, I didn't think about it. You know, there's this way that we have of working that gives us a a particular perspective. Exactly. I think I can get, get help from hearing that as well.
2: And also, I mean, I think one of the other things is if you can explain things, if people understand why you want to do what you do, you know, they're, they don't have problems, you know, brewing up herbs or doing different kinds of things because they, okay, I have this problem. These things are going to change in this way that I understand, uh, okay, let's go. So I think uh, the cooperation goes up quite a bit when the people are not passive receptors, but active participants uh, in their own health. Again, there's lots of variation in personality. So some people don't want to be active participants and you have to be able to figure out how to interact with those people a little differently But by and large, the people who come to our offices, by the time they get to us, they're pretty active. They want to be active participants in uh, helping themselves.
0: I've got a question about some Chinese. Okay. You up for it? Sure. (laughs) We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) So Chinese is such a funny, slippery language. There's a lot of terms that were given in acupuncture school and they sound great and they're interesting and and they're poetic and they're really hard to understand. So let me give you an example. Okay. The three treasures, Jing, Chi and Shun, right? Yes. 23 years ago, I was introduced to these. I'm still working out just what they are.
2: Well, Michael, I think this gets back to that um, precision versus accuracy thing that we were talking about earlier in the podcast, that if you want a very, very precise definition of any of those things, that definition is going to be not helpful and inaccurate, that they're all kind of murky ideas because they're real and they're about life and everything about life is a little murky. And so I think if you uh, look at them in different ways, you'll get a sense of, oh, that's what this is about here. And if from my perspective, if that's what you have versus some, something that you can uh, write in a very precise way, you probably have a, be- a better idea. So I think we have a sense of this. You have to have a very clear idea. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, actually, what you want to have is a very murky idea. And that murky idea gives you, again, the flexibility to understand and apply these ideas in different circumstances. Because I think part of Chinese... I mean, again, maybe precision is the wrong word here, but Chinese is a emblematic language. And things... uh, So like this idea of emblematicness goes through everywhere. So like this get off the language but you take the pulse someone's pulse the pulse is an emblem for everything that's going on in the person and all these different ways of talking about it are just ways of understanding that emblem so we talk about the the shun you could talk about it there's you know first of all it's there's more than one thing called shun that's very very clear you know they, they have how about the wushan and then the shen. And then you look at the character, the character has a sense of expansion to it if you take the character apart. But if you try to say, oh, it's like, you know, I don't know what to say. It's the activity of the frontal cortex. That's the shen. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, that would be taking this argument to absurd levels. But that's just not helpful. That's not really going to help you deal with it and help people. Is that no? The tongue has shunned, the eyes have shunned, uh, they have shunned disturbance. Which you know, again, we've talked about this before. Sometimes that just means the practitioner doesn't like the patient, so they say the patient has shunned disturbance. Uh, <laughs> so that's 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 and that's not a correct diagnosis, at least not of the patient, maybe of the practitioner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I think that's what I would say to this issue that if you Kind of get a sense of oh yeah it kind of works here it kind of works there that may be what's going on even you know that's going to be more useful than trying to have a very precise uh, you know the chi is these five things one two three you know that's just not that's that's not what it's about I don't think that's what yeah that's not what Chinese is about but it's also not what living things are about in the way that we appreciate them. is that, that answer, is that in any way respond to your thought?
0: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell Points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. But it brings up this other question, which is, how do we know when we're sort of within the you know, fun way of what a character is about? fun way is uh, like range scope. How do we know we're in the fun way of, of a character and not just making shit up because it, it sounds nice or we want it to be so or we just have this idea? Well, I mean, first of all,
2: <laughs> this is, you know, comes from my time studying at the UW here. We never, you should never really think about characters. You should only think about words. All the characters are words. They're, they are a way of writing down words. They're not ways of writing down concepts that aren't words. They never, ever, ever have been that. Okay. So that's like the first thing. And Mm. so, and so, so it's Chinese. What the Fangwei is, what the kind of, is not determined by us. It's determined by the people who've been using these words. And the words change over time for the last Mm -hmm. 2,500 years. So if you say, oh, I have this idea that this character means this, and no one in China has ever really realized that the character really means this. That's just bullshit. <laughs> that's like that's like the definition of like no, you, it's not. You can't say oh this word in another language. No one in that language has really understood it. I understand it, you know, because I'm sitting here drinking coffee in Seattle, making making it up. So I think that's my understanding. Of that. I mean, the first thing it's so you know. So when you just like if you take the etymology of an English word. You can see where things come from, but they come from words. They don't come from abstract concepts. And the Chinese writing has always been about words, not about some philosophical concepts. You know, maybe the gua of the I Ching, the hexagrams, that's a different thing. Uh, but when you talk about even the words that used to describe them, they're words. Uh they're not they're not kind. Of, so if you start, you know. I've I've had people tell me, oh yeah, no one in China really understood this character, but I understand it. And it's like, what are you drinking? <laughs> like, like, it's a Chinese word. You can't like say, I understand it better. <laughs> yeah. You
0: know? Yeah. Well, and of course, and, and like you were saying, words also change over time. They change with context. Sure. You know. And again, lots of
2: characters are write more than one word. Like, and again, I don't know what the. I mean, we have a word in English, mean, M E A N. Well, it has that spelling reflects different words. Like, what do I mean? Don't be mean to me. Those are not really the same thing, but they're written the same way. And the same kind of thing happens in Chinese that all the time there's a sound, there's a word. That has a certain sound there's another word that has a, sim- a similar sound so they'll use the same way to write it even though they don't necessarily have any meaning connections that does happen sometimes too
0: and then you've got the words that are written the same but they have different meanings absolutely yeah
2: and, yeah so it's a complicated subject that you but uh it's you know it's a because it is written uh, not in as characters or as not as phonetics. You have all this other level, you know, some, some, certain level of Chinese poetry is visual, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have visual real poetry in in English. So there's there are advantages and disadvantages to any kind of uh, writing system. But the Chinese, of course, near and dear to my heart, has lots of. Really interesting uh, things about it, but you just can't sit around <laughs> and think about. Oh, I wonder if this character looks like that to me, so that must be what it really
0: means. <laughs> that's, uh, that's just hilarious. But you know, at the same time, you can look at a character. You know, one of my favorites is Ting. Listen, yeah, and it tells you how to listen. You know, it's got an ear, it's got eyes, it's got a heart. I mean, it's built into the character.
2: Well, also, I mean, another mean letter, which works on all sorts of different levels, which maybe not for the, anyway, is the word sheng for sage. Mm. In our culture, we're about seers, right? We call this the seer, right? But sheng means the hearer. It's very clear in the character. And it's also clear, if you look at ancient Chinese philosophy, that they were the person who could hear things was the person who was the sage, not the person, not the seer, not the visionary. So that's a difference in, uh, and that has a lot to do with the basics of Chinese medicine, as this resonance, what Qi probably some aspects of what Qi originally was about. So you can look at the characters and you can see that, oh yeah, it's written this way, that part of the etymology is visual. Not so you don't have to be a, a Latin scholar or a Greek scholar in terms of English to see, you just have to be someone who can say, Oh, you know, so, now sometimes the parts of the character that we see were not the parts that were, you know, like the moon and the flesh, those are that kind of thing happens also always a hundred percent clear, but sometimes it is. And I think this idea about the sage being someone who is receptive, right, who under who kind of is in the vibe. Versus the person who is seeing things and directing things, uh, that's that has a maybe a core value in terms of understanding some of
0: what that means, what that word means. Well, it takes you down a whole different rabbit hole, right? When you start thinking about what a sage is, in terms of what aspect of their perceptual frameworks they're attending to. That's
2: right, and again, what you were talking about earlier. You know, we're not the first people to, oh, look at that. That's an interesting thing. We understand that the people before us, no one, like you know, this has been written about in Chinese for thousands of years. So I think that's another way to tell that you're probably, you know, doing something worthwhile, even though it may not be correct, but it's not just nonsense making things up is where there's a tradition of people thinking about this aspect
0: of the word. Yeah. Well, that is one of the uh, great things about, well, Chinese medicine in particular. You know, there's been discussions going on about this for as long as they've been writing about this. Absolutely. In some cases, maybe even even longer. (laughs) Yeah. I I know that you've got a busy practice. and, And I mean, you don't just practice, but you do translation, you do editing. I mean, you're involved in all kinds of stuff with Chinese medicine. I'm wondering where you get the time or how you, I don't know if manage is the right word, but how do you get so much done within a 24-hour-a-day time frame?
2: I'm going to answer your question in a different way, I think. The issue for people who go into practice is they have to, have some they have to develop some insight into how they work so this goes to the very basic issue of I think one of the binary issues of our practice is do you specialize or do you not right do you focus on women's diseases or do you focus on ophthalmology or do you just do whatever comes in the door and I think the one of the main deciding factors of that has to be how you work. So there are people that if they just see whoever comes in the door, they get flustered or they get, they feel that they're doing everything too superficially. It's not satisfying to them. And those people like they need to specialize and they have to find something that really they want to dive deep into both uh, on all levels, no. They want to see those kind of patients over and over and over again every day, right? They want to read about that kind of stuff mm. in the in the our literature over and over again whenever they get a chance, and they want to look in the modern scientific discussion of that kind of problem. They want to know all of the. They have, that's what they want to do. And if they do that, they'll have a long and productive career. But for other people, like I'm, I'm not, that's not who I am. I'm a scatterbrained person. And so uh, I need to do a bunch of different things uh, because otherwise I lose concentration. So it's like I can concentrate pretty well for short periods of time. Like My brother used to say, I have a fantastic memory. It's just kind of short. So... <laughs> uh, <laughs> So for me, it never really occurred to me to specialize, you know, given my background, maybe I would specialize in orthopedic stuff or stuff like that, but that's just not who I am. I need to see different kinds of people. Like my favorite days by far, and I get them every so often is I will have at least one patient from every decade of life. I'll have a Mm -hmm. baby. I'll have a teenager, have someone in their 20s, a couple of people in their 30s, someone in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s, in their 80s, in their 90s, I have 100, you know, that would be like, that's my ideal day. I don't care what the problems are, right? But I like to see, like, I have seen like a 96-year-old and a six-month-old in the same day with everybody in between. That's like, ah. that's like, well, that's like nirvana for me as, as a practitioner. And so in terms of the other things I do, it's the same thing. Oh, I like to read. Like I have, a, I feel maybe because of my, not my age, age, but because when I got involved in this medicine, uh, for, for maybe for, you know, I have an inflated sense of self. So I feel I have a, I have a obligation to do what I can to promote things to do what i can to see that in 2050 in 2080 people in the west have the option to get high quality east asian medicine that's just something that i think i owe my teachers who took a rotten wood a piece of rotten wood like myself and and worked at it for so long so the uh the writing and the lecturing and all stuff that comes from that that, that you know other people you know, whether you have that or not, it's up to you. Or maybe you most people don't have such an inflated sense of self, but you know, it's like it's, I I need to feel to feel good about myself. I need to try to do stuff to make this stuff available to more people and to be part of the tradition. We are part of the tradition, and part of the tradition is handing it all on like we have our own responsibility to add to the tradition and so, so i think in terms of my own personality doing these different things is really the only way that makes sense for me it's not a not a decision it's just a way of being just the way you happen to be wired the way i happen to be wired and so i think if if you're wired like me You should do stuff kind of like that. And when you have your practice, you definitely should not try to be a specialist in dermatology if you don't want to just look at rashes all day. Uh, If that's like you do, then that's what you should do, and you'll, you know. So I think that's that's how I would approach that uh, issue. Great,
0: Dan. Always enjoyable to spend a little time hanging out and liao liao tian. (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much for being on the show today
2: oh it's always a pleasure to talk to you Michael I hope this is of, of use to some people
0: thanks as always for listening if you liked this conversation if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight share the episode with your friends if you want to support Geological there's just one way to do that